0: This morning, we were speaking from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 regarding Paul's work with a large, important church, but a church with which he was having difficulty. And he was exhorting them that they had been falling into factions in which they were rallying to mere men rather than rallying to the person of Christ. Let's jump ahead to chapter 3, and you will hear that he is disappointed in their rate of growth, meaning that they have had enough time, uh, since they had come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, to have grown spiritually. Instead, he says, they're so infantile that he still has to feed them milk. Not even solid food. And so you might say to yourself, how is it that believers do not grow? How would a believer grow? And why is that so important? Are there blocks? Are are there some major mistakes that one makes that prevents him from growing naturally as is intended in his faith in Christ. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. And then here we have the beginning of the explanation of these blocks that prevent their growth, and it's similar to what we saw in chapter 1. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Sometimes we don't realize the huge mistakes that we've made that have prevented us from growing in our relationship with the Lord and enabling us to understand his word better and to allow his life to permeate us to the point that he guides us and shapes our choices and our interests, and our loves in life. You remember in the first chapter, he was saying that they had rallied to men rather than to God himself, and that they had actually divided themselves into factions. Here he calls them fleshly, carnal, oriented towards the things of the world, towards their own selfish interests rather than to Christ. This has remained a problem since chapter one, and we're seeing this repeating through the book as a huge problem. Our personal selfishness gets in the way of our spiritual growth. So sometimes people will say, I pray, I ask God for things, and it seems as if he doesn't hear me. It seems as if he doesn't care. It seems as if he doesn't know my needs. Could there be, I ask, impediments that are preventing a free flow of communion back and forth between the Lord and us as we are seeking help from him in prayer? Could it be that we only speak to him when we are desperate and that we don't speak to him in daily life, throughout the day, about everything that's going on. We only turn to him when we want something from him. Could that be a problem? Could it be that we're more oriented and interested in the things of the world than in the things of the Lord? He says that they're carnal, they're fleshly, rather than spiritual, and they're stunted in their growth. Notice he says... They can't even handle solid food. Frankly, when I was a young man with a a young baby, I was new at all of this, and Carol did most of those things, but I have this funny memory uh, where I was in a restaurant, and she was not with me. It was just my little baby, Christy, and me. Christy was old enough to be in a high chair at this point, and yet I was still feeding her Milk, and she seemed dissatisfied, and as if the milk was not filling her tummy to the way in which it should be. And so, uh, the waitress in the restaurant uh, was uh, older and more mature, and seems to have uh, known children. And she, on her own, brought solid food items to feed to her. And I was thinking, like, is she old enough yet? Can she? And she put that in her mouth, and and the waitress assured me she could. And she actually enjoyed it and thought that was wonderful. We would be horrified if we kept our children on milk for many years, and yet we're not horrified when individuals who come to Christ are satisfied to remain fairly ignorant in their understanding of the word, or in their interest in their spiritual growth. Notice he says in verse 3, the problem is your self-centeredness. Verse 3, you're still fleshly. Since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? He's saying there are divisions among them. He's already named them. He's rattled off various uh, possible names. Some say they're of a Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. In chapter four, verse six, he comes out and says, those are just placeholders. Those are just figurative. I'm not naming the real names, but you've broken yourselves into factions. And rather than remaining unified, all seeking to know Christ and to make him known, you're rallying to people. It's as if you're breaking yourselves into political parties. And you can see what's happening with the political parties in our country. And you can get the sense of how Good people, even families, divide over political differences. And you could see how that could happen in a local church in which you could rally to a particular cause or a particular individual that you would follow or a particular viewpoint that you could follow. And you'd say it's not so important to remain unified when Paul is saying, we only have one Christ. We should be following Him, not people. He says... Jealousy will ruin us in our spiritual growth. Are you not still fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, your conduct, your actions, your growth makes you much more in common with an unbeliever than a believer. In fact, sometimes as we're thinking of how we can help individuals, we even say, does he know the Lord? And the answer comes back, I'm not sure. And we would say, well, why wouldn't he be sure? He's been in and out and around us for years. Why wouldn't we be sure if he knows the Lord or not? And the answer is, is because he's not interested in the things of the Lord and because you don't see spiritual growth in his life and because you say he lives in the world He's still immature. Paul says this can't be. We need to understand that the expectation is that if God has come into our life, he's changed our hearts. We used to have hearts of stone. He's given given us hearts that are soft towards him. Our spirit used to be dead toward him. He's given us a spirit that is alive, that communes with his spirit. He's actually placed his Holy Spirit indwelling us. Believers then have every reason to love the Lord, feel his love, respond to his love, open our hearts freely before him in prayer, and share with him everything. And then it doesn't seem unnatural that we'd be praying to him regarding what are very great difficulties in our lives. It's not embarrassing, it's not awkward, because we're talking to him about everything in life. We're sharing everything with him. This opens us up to the desire to know him through his word and to get to know him well in this regard. Here's an example, verse 4. When one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? He is arguing that though you would admire them as leaders, they're just the means. They're not the end. They've led you to Christ or helped you grow in Christ, but they're not the ones that you rally to. You rally to Christ. And Paul and Apollos would be embarrassed if they heard that you were trying to follow them. We're not supposed to seek the praise of men. We're not supposed to make little images of ourselves. We would say... I want to be a follower of Christ. I am not rallying to a particular person. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Therefore our leaders are not to be competitive, we're not to say, well, how many do you have? How many do you have? Fishermen like to be competitive. They like to say, well, how many did you get? Well, we're not that way. We don't count PTRCs. That's prayed to receive Christ. We don't like keep score where we, how many PTRCs do you have? No, we don't do that. We are just helping people as we introduce them to the Savior we love. We're complementing each other. That's complementing with an E coming alongside and helping each other as the Lord gives each of us opportunity. He gives an example in verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. This may be revolutionary to us, especially if we've ever led someone to the Lord. We may almost feel as if we can take complete credit for being the one who led a person to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Paul was saying, hey, it takes a lot of people. Someone plants a seed, many people water, eventually the seed may grow and sprout, but you're just part of the witnesses that are going on in helping a person come to know Christ. Surveys have said here in America a person, on average, hears the gospel 15 times before they believe. That means that it's likely not the very first time they've heard the gospel. It's likely that you're part of that process. And none of us should be doing this because we're trying to check off for credit purposes. He says, no, verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. This may be a wake-up call to say, I save no one. Hear that again. I save no one. I can't save anyone. Christ is the one who saves. So what I am, I'm a vehicle to communicate the truth to a person. And I can testify of my experience of what's happened in my life, and I can give them illustrations, and I can answer their questions, and I can help them with some of their doubts or uh, the impediments they might have. I might be able to remove some of those for them. I can be praying for them. I can be as helpful as I can. But it's God who causes the growth, and it's God who receives the credit, not us. We have favorite preachers, don't we? Truly favorite preachers, where we would go out of our way to go hear a certain person preach. Years ago, when we lived near Chuck Swindoll's church, he's now in Texas, and we all enjoyed Chuck's preaching. My, my parents had come down from the mountain and were at our house there in Fullerton. We were just three miles, probably, from Chuck's place. And it was a Sunday afternoon. They said, hey, is Chuck preaching tonight? We go hear him. Now that's tourism, I tell you, where people from out of town want to hear the famous preacher that's around. And so I said, well, let me call up. So I called the the church, and someone was in the office, and I said, is Chuck preaching tonight? And they said, we're not going to tell you. And I said, do you mean you don't know who's preaching tonight? And the lady says, we know who's preaching tonight, we're not going to tell you. I said, why aren't you going to tell us? (laughs) And they said, because we want you to come anyway. It doesn't matter who's preaching tonight. We want you to come anyway. And it taught me a huge lesson. Chuck, for all his fame, is actually very humble. He says, you try to put me on a pedestal, I'm going to climb right down. I do not want to be a person on a pedestal to you. And that's healthy for us to hear from a person who's so famous and a person who's been gifted by the Lord and knows the word well and communicates well. That is a healthy thing for us to hear. But it's not news, we could have read it a couple thousand years ago in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he said, one who plants, another waters, those people are nothing. It's God who causes the growth. But then he says, let's say I'm a part of that witness. Let's say I gave the truth to someone. He says in verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. See, where does our unity come from? We're on the same team. We're doing the same work. We're not rallying to some individual. We're rallying to the person of Christ, the one who saved us. Our love is for Christ. And we realize we're all in this work together. And so we become one as we cooperate as members of the team, in a sense. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Carol and I are in complete agreement that when we were going through school, we hated it when they put us on teams, in which we had a team project and the team all received the same grade. Carol and I both worked for A's, not everybody on our teams worked for A's. Many of them were quite satisfied with substandard work and were happy to squeak by with a C or hopefully just lean on us and maybe get a higher grade as we in the team do more of the work. Each of us would have argued that we would have liked to have done it on our own. And yet our teachers would say to us such things as for the rest of your life you'll be working in teams. You better get used to it now. And as I look back over these many years, I'd say they were absolutely right. Most of my work has been done in teams, which means I'm not a Lone Ranger. I have to work with other people. I have to get along with other people. I have to do what I can do in the group, and I have to help those people do what they can do in the group. And what he's saying here is we're all members of the same body, and all of us need to contribute because we need everyone's contribution, and we're not to separate off and say, I'll do my little thing over here, and you go do your little thing over here. No, we are... Together in the same work, he who plants, he who waters are one. But here's the interesting thing that removes the frustration that Carol and I have. Each of us will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And we'd say like, well, how will the teacher know the difference of who put in the labor? The teacher, in this case, is Christ himself. He is our judge. He is the one who sees what we are doing and rewards us according to our own labor. You might say, does that in any way trivialize our work that we will receive reward for it? Wouldn't it be better if we were willing to serve the Lord out of pure love and appreciation and gratitude as well? That would be wonderful. But he also made us and knows what we are like. And a few of us would say it wouldn't be nice that someone is appreciative. In fact, he says, I want you to enjoy me more. The more we serve him, the deeper our relationship becomes and the more we will enjoy him forever. You hear of these infantile, milk-drinking believers who say, I'm going to be bored in heaven. I don't even want to go to heaven. What is that going to be like? Worship meeting 24 hours a day, 365 for the rest of eternity. Now, I'm not interested in that. It's because they don't have the deep relationship with each other. My wife and I have been married 41 years. Are we bored with each other? We are not. We are each other's best friends. We actually enjoy being with each other more than anything else. In fact, I feel half of myself when she's not around. (laughs) We'll have to check with her afterwards to see what she has to say about that. She seems to depend on me a lot, so perhaps I'm at least helpful in the things that we do together. We should be developing such a love for Christ and such a deep relationship with Christ that we would be thrilled if he were happy with us, thrilled that he loves what we're doing for him, and thrilled that he would want to reward us. Now, truly, we don't deserve anything, but largely the reward is just more service Perhaps you've noticed at any assembly anywhere, it seems like 10% of the people do 90% of the work. It just seems to be human nature. It's also true in the stewardship parables that Jesus teaches that those who succeed in doing more work better are given more work, and hence more opportunity to serve and more opportunity to be pleasing to him. So you could, for the rest of eternity, drink out of one of those little Dixie cups that you drink out of in the dark in the middle of the night, or you could go to 7-Eleven and get a 44-ounce Big Gulp and be drinking out of that for the rest of eternity. You could have a greater capacity to love and enjoy and serve the Lord because of the growth of your relationship, or you can be drinking milk for the rest of eternity in a sense, as he's exhorting us to let him have his way with us and let him teach us how to serve him. He's given us a particular giftedness, spiritual gifts. He is leading us in how to exercise those gifts. Our gifts are different from the gifts of the people next to us, and so we each need to make our individual contribution for the overall growth of the ministry and the overall growth of the church. For example, if I were a hand and another person was a foot, if someone else were an eye and another person an ear, using this analogy that Paul has regarding a body, he says, where would you be without a foot or an eye or an ear? You need each person to pull their weight, each person to do their work, each person to serve so that the body is building itself up in love. And then God will reward us. It's him we serve. We do not seek reward from men. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. An amazing concept. So if we're placed on a team and we're saying, who are the members of the team, one of the members, in fact, I would say the project manager, is God himself. We are working for him. We are fellow workers with him. Whether you use the analogy of a field in in growing crops, whether you use the analogy of building a building, we are working side by side with Christ. I think it was Monday of this week, we had a toilet in a ladies' room that was out at our chapel. And who knew that it was purchased at Costco, which means there are no parts except in Kansas. You can't buy parts for this toilet. Several men had volunteered to fix the toilet, even though it was in the ladies' room, bought parts, started the job, and said like, None of my parts fit. Doesn't matter where you're going to Home Depot or Lowe's, no parts will fit. Eventually, we figured it out. Costco found some place in Kansas that would sell them $60 toilets, probably bought thousands and thousands of them. <laughs> and that gasket that goes between the tank and the stool is unique to that toilet. So we had a friend who Been a plumber and we said can you come to our rescue we're beyond our abilities can you rescue us and so i thought money was going to be all about fixing a toilet well we had to take a drive to another city to find the exact part he happened to know plumbers that specialize in hard to find parts from kansas notice i'm blasting kansas because (laughs) we have friends from kansas here who are you rooting for in the the game next week Anybody in particular? Are you rooting for California? We get in the car and start driving, and we've we've got basically an hour to talk to each other. And for some reason, he opens up and starts pouring out his heart spiritually and starts giving me his life spiritually and asking for input into his life spiritually. And I'm just so astounded, I say to the Lord, wait a second, I thought we were fixing a toilet today. We're actually fixing a man's heart. So many of us won't volunteer to fix a toilet because we think it'll be about a toilet when it's actually about people's hearts. Christian ministry, when we work shoulder to shoulder, even on something around the chapel building, is about spiritual ministry. If we just opened our eyes, we would see spiritual ministry Everywhere. If we would just let people talk to us, if we would just listen to people, if we would respond and give them spiritual advice. Out of courtesy, I said, How much do we owe you? After he fixed the toilet, he says, You don't owe me anything. Please pray for me. Well, he's getting more work from all of us. We're all going to (laughs) be inviting him to come fix things around our house, and we will be praying for him as well. We want to serve the Lord by exercising our gifts and building up one another in the faith and helping young Christians grow in their faith. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, meaning that God is the one that gives the enablement for us to do this work. The moment you say, well, I could never do that. I couldn't listen to someone about spiritual issues. I couldn't pray for that person. God will give you the grace to do it. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so notice we're talking about believers here, yet so as through fire an extended analogy based on the concept, we are God's building, in which he describes the building up of God's work. And he says, when you work, you're working for God in his empowerment, by his leading, for his purposes. And so he says... Make sure you use good materials in any kind of building. You could use shoddy materials. You could use things that are going to last only a little time. Or you could use materials and tools and the like that will last a long time. I have never been to Harbor Freight. I get ads from Harbor Freight all the time. Their prices are ridiculously low. I asked one of my sons about it, because he's into building stuff, and I said, what in the world is Harbor Freight for? And he says, if you have one task one day and you're gonna use the tool once, Harbor Freight's a great place. (laughs) But he says, if you need a tool that's gonna last for years, you really ought to be shopping somewhere else. A very interesting concept. Whether you're talking about tools, whether you're talking about materials, there are different ones you can use and you're going to have different results as as to the results of it. And he says, I am going to grade you on the quality of your work. If your work passes the test, and he gives an example of it facing attack by fire, he says he'll receive a reward. If your materials do not pass... If, in a sense, tested by fire, they burn up, then you will suffer loss, not the loss of your salvation, but the loss of reward, which will diminish your capacity to love, enjoy, and serve the Lord in the eternal state for eternity. And consequently, what we do on this earth makes a difference as to the roles we will play in the eternal state and how much responsibility that we will have in the eternal state. It begins in his kingdom for a thousand years here on earth and it continues then forever and ever on the new earth. He says, first of all, this is not your building. It is built on Jesus Christ. It belongs to Jesus Christ, verse 11. Secondly, he says... Be careful the materials you use. Make sure it stands the test of time. Make sure we're choosing valuable versus unvaluable things. Get your materials from me. Buy from me. Use what I give you. Gold, silver, precious stones. It's all about him. It's not about us at all. Don't be unwise and be a destructive builder who doesn't care about whether it lasts, who uses the wisdom of the world that is selfish and deceiving and makes it all about him. And it's a house of cards that just collapse. He says, each man's work will become evident The day will show it, he's speaking of the judgment day, because it's to be revealed with fire. The fire is a picture of Jesus Christ's judgment that tests the quality of our work. What's the measurement? Was this done according to God's will? Was this done with God's empowerment? Was this done for God's glory? Or was this all about my vanity project to make me look good and have everybody else say, wow, what a master builder you are. It should be nothing about me and all about him. The reward comes when he honors us with more and more responsibility. Perhaps in your line of work, Uh, you have found that the people that work very hard and find themselves faithful are promoted and given more and more work. In fact, you probably have heard some of them say, like, what's my reward? More work? More responsibility? Well, what happens is they end up leaders in teams, and they end up managing additional people, and therefore they're capable of doing more work In fact, in many ways, they may not do the hands-on work as much as managing the people who are doing the hands-on work, but they're managing the quality of the work and the overall purpose of this work. And so you gain additional responsibility, additional opportunities of service for the Lord. And as you're working for him, your heart gets larger and larger in love with him in a desire to please him, in a desire to enjoy him, in your capacity to enjoy him, your capacity to love him, your capacity to want to serve him grows more and more. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you all, it's in the plural, its not speaking of us as individuals. That comes in chapter 6, verse 19, where it uses the same imagery to refer to us as individuals. Do you not know that you all are a temple of God? He's speaking here of a local representation of the universal church. For example, he's speaking here of Claremont Bible Chapel. Do you not know that you all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that's what you all are. He's talking about false teachers, for one, but contextually in these first three chapters, even more so than that, he's talking about factious leaders, leaders who break the body into pieces and get groups of the body to rally to them. In which, rather than rallying to Christ, they're rallying to a human being. They're following him. He says, what will happen to that? God will destroy that false teacher, that factious leader, because the temple of God is holy. That's what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. It takes a little while to figure that out, but what he's saying is, where is your source of truth? Is it coming from the world and the wisdom of the world? Then you're all wrong. If it's coming from God's word, then you are right. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it's written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they're useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. God is the source of every blessing. We belong to God alone. All of our allegiance should be to Christ, not to other men. I know we have people we enjoy. I know we've had uh, people who have encouraged us, been examples to us, have discipled us, have poured their lives into us. But if they've done it well, they've never pointed you to themselves. They've always pointed you to Christ. And they've always said, follow me as I follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's not be factious. Let's not rally to men. Let's rally to Christ Let's not be infantile, still drinking spiritual milk. Let's grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's serve him, exercising the gifts that he's given us, building up the body in love, using our gifts to minister to each other. And if the Lord seeks to reward us and encourage us and give us more opportunity, praise God that we have brought glory to him. Oh, Father, we pray then on the advice of what we have heard from the Apostle Paul, that you would help us as we seek to be followers of you. Uh, We would ask that you uh, would guide us so that we do things according to your plan, for your glory. May you be pleased with us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.